sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. Well, taxes may be one of the twin inevitabilities of life, along with non-life. But taxes for religion? Are we really at the point where we want to fund people's, well, in this case, religious schools? Our guest today, law professor Steve Green, director of the Center for Religion, Law, and Democracy at Willamette University School of Law. We've got a bombshell of a Supreme Court case pending called Espinoza. Steve, why don't you set this up first and tell our listeners kind of the basic facts of what happened in Espinoza and how it got to the court. Well, Alan, glad to join you again. Um, this is dealing with what we call a tax credit system, a tax credit scholarship system. Um, these came into vogue probably about 10, 15 years ago as somewhat of an alternative to a voucher system, giving the tuition vouchers for children to attend uh, private religious schools. This was seen as a little bit more palatable because the state itself, or the government itself, was not actually giving the voucher to a parent. What it did, it set up a system where there could be a uh, independent scholarship fund. And so person A contribute to this independent scholarship fund. And then the scholarship fund would then pay the tuition for child B to go to a private religious school. In return for making the donation to the scholarship fund, person A gets a dollar-for-dollar tax credit from the state. So basically what happens is that the incentive is is that I will get my dollar-for-dollar tax credit um, if I contribute to the scholarship fund for my grandchild, um, for my neighbor's child to go to the school. Um, and so it ends up being basically a, a direct subsidy, in my mind, a direct subsidy for religious-based education. Right. few states have done this. Most of them have been upheld. Uh, Montana set up a system like this, the Montana legislature, I'm sorry, and uh, it was then challenged because Montana has a uh, no-aid provision in its state constitution that prohibits direct or indirect monies going to uh, religious institutions, including religious schools. And the Montana Supreme Court, therefore, struck down this tax credit and said it violated the state constitution. Um, and so the parties, the um, plaintiffs who were wanting to get the scholarship for a uh, Christian school in Kalispell, Montana, um, appealed this to the United States Supreme Court. And the United States Supreme Court granted review on this, and arguments were heard at the beginning of January, I it was. And I think the, you know, the bigger issue here is not so much the tax credit program as such, but the attack on no-aid provisions in state constitutions, which, frankly, uh, what, some 30, I think 38 states have. And, I mean, at least conceptually, the concept of not giving financial aid to religion goes back to colonial times, right? Quite clearly. There are, um, as you said, in addition to the federal constitution, the federal free exercise and no establishment clauses, all states have some form of religious liberty clause in their own state constitutions. 
Uh, states can have more expansive provisions. Uh, they can't really have something that's less protective, but they can have more expansive provisions. And so 38 states have some type of express provision that prevents money uh, from the state or from any um, governmental entity being paid to a religious institution, and most of them also specify religious schools. Uh, these were first came into being in uh, 1835. Michigan was the first state to put one of these specific provisions in their state constitution. And by the time of the Civil War, there are approximately 10 uh, states that had these express provisions in their constitutions. In addition to these express no-aid provisions, there are other provisions called the Known Compelled Support Clauses, which really do go back to Pennsylvania's 1776 constitution, which said you cannot compel somebody to pay for the religion of another person. And so these have a long legacy. Right. Well, and of course, the Virginia experience has served uh, prominently in Supreme Court cases where religion was disestablished in the 1780s at uh, really the leadership of James Madison and railing against uh, tax support for religion. So quite, quite true, yes. I mean, if there's anything that I think even most scholars, uh, even across the spectrum, agree, if there was one indicia of what a religious establishment meant during the colonial period, it was giving tax money to pay for a, someone else's religion. Um, there's broad consensus on that. And so consequently, this has a long legacy within our constitutional tradition of not using public funds to pay for religious instruction, religious education. So here we have this principle that in the context of a fairly, I'm going to characterize it as a relatively innocuous tax credit scheme. You know, it's certainly not the worst that we've seen by a long shot. But in this context, the court has been urged to literally overturn these constitutional provisions in the vast majority of our state constitution. And this of a court that seems to think that the federal government should give a lot of room to the states to call it the way they see it when it comes to these kinds of issues, right? You're exactly right. This in some ways is very inconsistent with the trend of the current Supreme Court, particularly among the more political conservative members of the Supreme Court been emphasizing really since the mid-90s this idea of federalism and state sovereignty and independence of states to kind of go their own way without federal regulation interfering with them. And so this turns that theory, uh, that constitutional construct on its head to say, oh, by the way, when it comes to religious liberty issues, we're going to make everybody march by the same drum. And a state cannot be more protective about church-state separation as a result of that. Um, these no-aid provisions, yes, they've been, they've been kind of in the bullseye or in the scope of some organizations really since the late 1990s. And they've been looking for cases to challenge this and try to have the Supreme Court agree that these no-aid provisions, primarily the claim is, is that they were came into being as a result of anti-Catholic animus in the middle of the 19th century. And as a result, they should be struck down on that ground. The thing that strikes me as so ironic about that claim in this case, Steve, is if I have my facts straight, the Montana Catholic Conference approved this specific provision when the Montana Constitution was renewed in about 1970. Yes, you're right. 
And uh, what we did in the, in the brief uh, that I filed at the United States Supreme Court in this case on behalf of several religious organizations, uh, we did a lot of research into kind of the history of this provision, original provision in Montana, and it first appeared in a territorial constitution in 1884. And uh, what we discovered at the time is actually uh, the Catholic Church or, or members of the Catholic Church it was the largest denomination in the state, and many of the leaders of the territory and in the state of Montana were in fact Catholics, and so it kind of doesn't make sense to say that this provision was put in place initially by Catholic animus when Catholics were the most dominant religious group in the state. One of the articles that I clipped uh, quoted, you know, was the headline was about Justice Kavanaugh attributing this to anti-Catholic bigotry. Yes, he did. I mean, he's um, agreed with the arguments that the other side has made about the origins of this. Um, what I have tried to maintain in a couple of books I've written about this and in several articles is that there's no question that there was uh, anti-Catholic animus that existed in the 19th century. Um, there's no question that the uh, Catholic parochial schools were the largest competitor of public schools. But there were other reasons that uh, people wanted to ensure that aid was not taken away from public education and given to private education. One of the main reasons is the public school system was in its rudimentary stages, and the funding stream was not secure. And so consequently, to protect the integrity of public education and believe that this would be a place where children of all faiths and all communities could come to get a common schooling, that they wanted to reserve the public funding for public schools. Issues of accountability were also at the same time. And so, whereas some people may have supported these no-aid provisions so kept Catholic schools from getting money, uh, that's not the entire story of the history. Well, you know, I have a pithy saying that, um, you know, I think helps maybe our religious listeners to understand the stakes here. This is definitely a be careful what you wish for moment, um, in my view, because I support Christian education. My kids are largely the product of Christian education. But, um, you know, what do we call schools that are funded by public tax money? We call them public schools. And if Christian schools start being funded by public tax money, we're going to lose the Christian character of the schools. They're going to turn into public schools. It's really just that simple. Um, you know, they, I like... Go ahead. But the public funds, then the public regulates, too. And so I think that should always be a concern ah, for any religious institution. Yes. They're not going to well, that's the money. other golden rule. The who's got the gold makes the rules. <laughs> yes. The other thing, and I think you're exactly right, and I tell this to my students when I get into the area of church, state, or religion clauses. As I said, my reading of the religion clauses, uh, maybe it's pretty simplistic, but my reading is is that because it says free exercise of religion and no establishment of religion, the Constitution singles out religion for distinctive treatment. And sometimes that means you need to treat religion and religious believers differently and better because of the importance of religion in their personal lives. But then other times they mean that maybe religious institutions should not be treated the same as, you know, other secular institutions because of the unique aspects of religion. And consequently, they may not be able to receive all of the monetary benefits that these other institutions do. And part of that is to protect the integrity of religious institutions. And what bothers me about the arguments I'm hearing on the other side is that the bottom line is just saying, just treat religion the same. Right. Just teach 
like any other secular institution. And I think that flies in the face of the Constitution, but I also think it's a dangerous precedent when we start saying religion is no different from any other system. That's why in my brief I had four leading uh, Protestant denominations sign on to it, because that's the first half of the brief, the point we made is that religion is distinctive, and we need to respect that distinctive difference. Well, and really, despite all the attacks on, uh, you know, no establishment of religion, the whole point is to preserve the independence of religious institutions, their autonomy, their opportunity to function according to their own values and beliefs, and, and not be regulated and controlled by the state. You know, because they're institutionally separate. They're not funded by the state. And so, you know, it's it's limited uh, the extent to which the state can tell them what to do. So, Steve, we should definitely have more of these conversations. Delighted to have you with us on Freedom's Ring. Any last words on this for our listeners? Well, I think people need to, uh, to keep aware of what's going on and pay attention to the cases that are coming down because a lot really is happening in this area these days and it's so important uh, to our overall concepts of religious freedom in America. Indeed it is. And this case could really just be a, a huge reversal of our historic uh, commitment not to fund religion. Our guest today is Steve Green, a law professor at Willamette University School of Law. Thanks for being with us, Steve, and let's do it again. Thank you, Alan. Happy to. And as we close, remember, folks, at Freedom's Ring, we don't just talk about religious freedom. We help workers suffering religious discrimination. Check out our legal resources page at churchstate.org, churchstate.org. And don't forget, friends, freedom is not free. Be informed. Get involved. Join the North American Religious Liberty Association, producer of Freedom's Ring, on the web at religiousliberty.info. Be sure to listen to Freedom's Ring on our SoundCloud radio station or on iTunes. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Until next week, let Freedom Ring. <laughs>